You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Hello, Real Vision. My name is Quentin Matthews. I am the managing member of QKM, a in-depth investigative research firm. And today I have the pleasure of speaking with Jesse Isinger. Jesse is the author of The Chicken Shit Club, Why the Department of Justice Fails to Prosecute Executives. Uh, his book is a history lesson into why the United States uh, rarely prosecutes white-collar criminals anymore and instead has moved to a system where we largely uh, enter no-admit, no-deny, deferred prosecution agreements with the corporations uh, and leave the shareholders footing the bill for the uh, corporate malfeasance. Uh, it's a terrific book that I found in my research uh, really struck at the the root of a number of the issues that I'm looking to dig into on this series with Real Vision and therefore is a perfect place for us to begin our journey. So with that, Jesse, welcome. Uh, hi, Quentin. Thank you for having me. I'm uh, thrilled to be here. Absolutely. All right. We got a lot, a lot of ground to cover, so we'll, we'll jump right in. It's my opinion and um, I, I think it's indisputable that um, in many ways, our society has sadly become numb to the fact that white-collar criminals get away with real serious white-collar crime. Um, but like so many things in uh, our life today, it, it didn't used to be that way. So perhaps you can start off by going through some of the eras of the SEC and the Department of Justice that you cover in your book and uh, give the viewers an idea of what the rule of law used to look like uh, for corporate criminals. Yeah, sure. Um, happy to do that. You know, we, as I say in the book, we've never had a golden age where the rich and powerful had to fear for their liberty if they committed crimes, but we've had silver ages. Um, and I think we had a cycle, uh, thumbnail, kind of easy history of the last uh, 120 years or so would be that we had boom busts and crackdowns. Um, and of course we had the 1929 crash. Um, and after that, we really create the entire firmament of the securities markets, corporate regulatory structure that we know today, the 1933 and 34 securities act creates the uh, Securities and Exchange Commission. Eventually, we get the 1940 Investment Act. What that does is kind of invent white-collar crime. And what I mean by that is that, of course, things like embezzlement or uh, crimes not of uh, street crimes, not burglary or uh, you know, murder, were understood to be uh, crimes. But there were other things that were completely legal, like shorting your own stock. The um, chairman of Chase Bank shorted his own stock into 
1929 crash. And there were all sorts of investment pools that were really stock manipulation pools. All of that was perfectly legal um, leading up to 1929, and that was uh, made illegal. Uh, And so after that, there were some crackdowns, and uh, the head of the New York Stock Exchange went to prison um, uh, eventually, a few years later. Um, Then sort of Skipping ahead very quickly, you know, it's sort of there's ups and downs, but we had the SNL crisis in the late 1980s. Over a thousand executives go to prison um, in the wake of the investigations into the SNL um, frauds, including many of the top executives at many of the top firms. We have the in the wake of the junk bond crisis uh, and. Uh, boom and bust of the 1980s, roughly around the same time. Um, arguably the most powerful man in on Wall Street at the time, Michael Milken, goes to prison along with uh, lawyers and uh, other members of Wall Street firms. You know, the uh, a partner at Goldman Sachs is frog marched off the trading room floor in handcuffs. Um, so it's a serious crackdown. And then leading up to the NASDAQ bubble bursting, which is really a kind of stock market bubble um, in the late 1990s, and almost all the those frauds are investigated and individuals from almost all of the major firms involved in those are prosecuted. So you get WorldCom, Adelphia, Tyco, um, global Crossing and a variety of other smaller firms. And then, of course, the biggest and marquee prosecution there are the executives of Enron, the giant Texas trading firm. So that's my history um, up until the financial crisis, where after the financial crisis, which is really the biggest financial crisis since the Great Depression, uh, we essentially get nothing. One somewhat high level Credit Suisse banker goes to prison for actual things that were done in the wake of the financial crisis or leading up to the financial crisis um, that contributed to it. So one guy versus dozens and thousands in previous era. I think it was the chairman of the SEC, uh, Breeden, uh, I think during the SNL uh, period, uh, that said the way that we should be prosecuting white-collar criminals is to uh, in a way that leaves them naked, homeless, and without wheels, um, which which I couldn't agree with uh, anymore. And out of all the stories, you know, some people in today's world, I, I you know, I think the average investor is probably like me, is around forty years old, and and really doesn't remember uh, a time when when people went to prison. And certainly, you know, the idea of of the uh, president of the New York Stock Exchange going to prison is 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 foreign. So. What happened? You know, when did it happen? Uh, what's transpired, and and what are the kind of leading causes of of to what it's gotten to the point where we are now? Yeah, well, it's a complex story, and that's why I felt like it needed uh, a book treatment. And I hope all the listeners go out and uh, buy two copies after they listen to this. They don't have to read it, but uh, you should all buy. Um, you're all wealthy people. Um, so uh, I locate the story in the last fifteen years. Um, or so, because in the early 2000s, uh, we did as a country prosecute most of the top executives, as I say, from most of the uh, big companies. So there was a time when we could do this, and it's 
um, within living memory, and then we lost the skill set and will. So what, what really happened here? Why did we lose the will and ability to prosecute top corporate executives? Um, and it actually is much worse than uh, just not prosecuting top corporate, corporate executives. I think that, as you said in your opener, that we have a white-collar prosecution crisis and that we don't prosecute significant white-collar criminals from huge swaths of the economy. So I was really focused in my book on large corporations and the CEOs and CFOs and chairmen and women of those corporations. But if you look at the Trump administration, I think that's revealed a much greater and deeper, more profound crisis and lack of prosecutions, a kind of under-policing and no, no policing of things like commercial real estate and taxation and tax fraud and corporate lobbying and campaign finance, and the list goes on. So what happened? Well, one of the major things that happened is that after that round of successful prosecutions in the of the Enron era, there was an enormous backlash uh, led by the white-collar defense bar and corporations, and it depicted these prosecutions as from cowboy prosecutors. And there, there was a wave of the backlash in the wake of Milken too, and this kind of built onto that. So most people think of Rudy Giuliani as having uh, been a cowboy, and then there were cowboy prosecutions uh, or labeled cowboy prosecutions in the wake of Enron, World Tom, those things. Can I ask real quickly, uh, just so we all know what you mean, what is the... Uh, uh, defense bar and, you know, where do they get their power and, and uh, just give a little context uh, for the story of who, who we're going up against. Sure. So what we're talking about here are the major law firms that work for corporations. Uh, they're also called white shoe law firms. Um, and uh, they have criminal defense uh, departments, um, divisions, and they defend corporations criminally. Now, this all wasn't always thus. And we're talking about firms like Sullivan and Cromwell and Deva Boys and Plimpton and Davis Polk, and the, the list goes on and on like that. Down in uh, Washington, D.C., you have specialist firms in D.C. like Covington and Burling and Arnold and Porter, um, Kirkland and Ellis. And um, so there are maybe 20 firms like this, Paul Weiss, that uh, really specialize in this and um, are the firms that service the largest corporations. And they're giant firms. Um, and what happened was there was an evolution in the law. Um, and uh, in the 1970s and really through the 1980s, they, these firms did not actually take on criminal work. That was kind of beneath them. Um, it was seen as uh, really sullying your reputation. Um, and so they did transactional work of all kinds, you know, M&A and the, the usual uh, kind of thing for corporations. But they, these large law firms would, when they were confronted with a criminal investigation of some kind, would then refer to a smaller firm, a boutique firm, a set of specialists who were criminal defense lawyers, and they would take on the CEO um, if he had uh, run somebody over in a car or something like that, or um, gotten arrested for drugs or prostitution or something like that. So that was the kind of criminal bar. And 
Um, and then there was the more refined kind of uh, corporate bar. And over time that merged. And what happened was prosecutors began to focus on a higher class of criminal. Um, and that really started happening in the 1960s and 70s. So as I was saying that, you know, there was this kind of boom and bust cycle, but really from the 30s to the 60s, um, there isn't much serious white collar prosecution. And then a guy named Robert Morgenthau, um, very famous. Um, people know him because he was uh, the model for the first DA in the TV series Law and Order. And he's kind of legendary Manhattan DA. But before that, he was the U.S. attorney in the Southern District of New York. And the Southern District of New York is the most prestigious office of the Department of Justice. And they act almost independently. And they, um, they're the smartest and brightest and most brilliant uh, prosecutors in the land, uh, you know, because they tell you they are. Uh, you, yeah, that's certainly according to them. And um, Morgan Thaw was a giant. Uh, and, um, and in his time, he said, we should prosecute. We should go where the money is and, um, and raise our sights. And uh, we can't just prosecute uh, street criminals and drug dealers on the streets. Uh, you know, on the corner, we need to go and into the boardrooms. And they, he went one step further in conjunction with, or this is kind of a movement that spanned kind of the 60s and 70s with a guy named Stanley Sporkin in the 1970s, who was arguably maybe what, at least uh, the most pow powerful bureaucrat in Washington uh, in throughout the 70s, if not you know the most powerful governmental figure. Um, and he was the head of enforcement at the SEC through most of the 70s. Um, uh, eventually becomes a, a judge, an important judge. And he, he and Morgenthau, uh, Morgenthau before him and then Sporkin kind of developed this um, theory, which they call access theory, but we call sort of gatekeepers, where they try to focus on prosecuting lawyers and accountants with the idea and investment bankers. With the idea that these are um, the uh, entities, the uh, um, people who give access to corporate corporations to the capital markets, access to the capital markets to corporations, and um, and are the gatekeepers and um, are also kind of the first uh, defense that the public has against criminals. And if you prosecute these people, um, you get some huge amount of leverage, a kind of cascading effect throughout the system. And so they really do throw some uh, account KPMG partners in prison and uh, lawyers. And, um, and that's, I think, an incredibly effective way of going about prosecuting white collar crime. So what's happening is, one, they're, they're raising their sights on this. And two, what they're doing is they're prosecuting corporations as well for fraud. And these large defense firms start to realize that prosecutors are focused on them. And so they start creating white, white collar defense practices uh, to kind of capture this business. It becomes kind of classier business um, and it becomes a bigger business. Um, and it becomes something that corporations have, you know, some ongoing need for. Uh, and these large law firms want to 
provide, uh, you know, uh, supply that need or, you know, um, fulfill that need. And, um, and then what they start to do is figure out, well, who has expertise in this? And they start hiring prosecutors uh, to be partners at these defense firms. And so you get this kind of symbiotic relationship. And it develops in uh, tandem, where prosecutors focus more and more on corporations, the revolving door speeds up, these departments become even bigger, uh, the divisions of these law firms become even bigger. It's an incredibly lucrative, uh, very high margin work. And then it suddenly, sort of slow, not suddenly, slowly over time kind of morphs into uh, corporations becoming an arm of the government. But the dirty little secret of white collar prosecutions is that the government has outsourced and privatized it effectively. And they've outsourced and privatized it to the corporations themselves. Corporations hire these law firms, the law firms do the investigation, um, and then that's it. And that's no way to run a rodeo. Yeah. And I think most uh, general investors will understand uh, this process less from the prosecution side, but more from the news flow side where a, uh, a short seller or an investigative journalist uh, will come out uh, with research on a company um, uh, about you know some particular malfeasance, and the board uh, will then come in and uh, hire the quote unquote you know, kind of outside independent legal counsel to, again, you've effectively outsourced the regulation to the law firm, but the law firm really is there to do what any lawyer is supposed to do, which is to um, uh, protect the corporations and the people that hired them. And I think the the other piece to this that, that actually is kind of the outcome that goes a little further is that... Um, in a investigation that's run by a regulatory body that's funded by uh, taxpayer dollars, we have uh, a little thing called the FOIA Act, Freedom of Information Act. And uh, if somebody such as yourself wants to go out and find information on what happened in the investigation and what was the outcome and what you know what was found, uh, it may take some some polling with the regulatory body, but those documents can be achieved. And of course, uh, in these uh, independent investigations done by the by the law firms, uh, nobody ever sees uh, those documents, and there's no way for the uh, the public to get them. So, what though was it that led the focus on the corporations versus the executives? Was it the fact that the lawyers knew that there was more money to be made by getting paid by the corporations because that's where the money is, or was it? Um, you know, something kind of internally uh, that happened at the Department of Justice and SEC that that uh, made them shy away from the executives and focus on the corporations. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. Yeah, these developments are sort of um, coming in tandem, really, and, um, and influencing each other. So there's a lot of kind of cross-fertilization 
But one of the things that happens is that in the wake of the Enron um, prosecutions, as I was referring to earlier, uh, prosecutors um, prosecuted, the government prosecuted Arthur Anderson, uh, Enron's uh, accounting firm, and not, uh, they prosecuted an individual, but they also um, charged the firm itself. Uh, and the firm, which wasn't a corporation, of course, it was a partnership at that time, um, was brought to trial and lost at trial uh, and then dissolved. Subsequently, it was uh, people understood that the trial had put them out of business, but I think that's kind of um, uh, silly and misplaced uh, because I think the firm was going out of business anyway. Not only had they been Enron's pro um accounting firm, but they'd also been WorldComs and they were uh, facing huge lawsuits and the partners kind of dissolved the firm to try to get ahead of that. Um, and I think it was a fait accompli with, with or without the guilty plea. Um, but subsequently, the guilty plea is overturned at the Supreme Court on something of a technicality about jury instructions. Um, I don't think it would have really mattered. Um, but uh, it was never retried and it has come to be understood by mainstream legal uh, minds, um, including prosecutors, uh, that the Arthur Anderson prosecution was a terrible mistake. Um, and I go through that in my book. There's a chapter on the Arthur Anderson prosecution because uh, Arthur Anderson was a handmaiden to Enron's fraud. It was incredibly enmeshed in Enron, um, and they were sending executives back and forth, and many, many Arthur Anderson partners um, went over to work with Enron, and Enron's accounting fraud was um, systemic and varied, and Arthur Anderson was there the whole way along, and Arthur Anderson also had been overseeing numerous frauds in the era, so I think it was a completely compromised, um, corrupt firm, um, worthy of prosecution. But what the Anderson PR team and firm does incredibly successfully is they change the subject. And they change the subject away from accounting fraud and Anderson's culpability in accounting fraud. I should mention um, that when Enron was being investigated, Anderson destroyed literally tons and tons of documents related to the Enron audit before the government could um, subpoena them. So that was the kind of obstruction of justice that they were guilty of. Um, but uh, what happens is they change the subject from accounting fraud and obstruction of justice and to the collateral consequences, to the people who are uh, who lose their jobs thousands and thousands of people who lose their jobs when Anderson is goes out of business. Now, again, I don't think the trial puts them out of business, so I don't think the trial put them out of their jobs, um, but this is the way it was understood, and not just understood by um, you know conservatives who uh, pay fealty to the Wall Street Journal editorial page, but people like Lanny Brewer, who became Obama's um, head of the uh, criminal division of the Department of Justice, and Mary Jo White, who became Obama's head of the Securities and Exchange Commissions. They had completely imbibed this um, uh, view of Anderson and that it was an excessive prosecution, cowboy prosecution. And so they decided we're going to take off uh, prosecuting companies. We're not going to 
bring companies to trial and put them out of business and charge them criminally, indict companies. That's basically off the table. Nobody said that um, explicitly, but that was effectively what happened. Um, and so what they did was they started to settle with corporations and they told themselves a story about this. Prosecutors did. And the story was, we don't want to root out bad apples. And we don't want to prosecute and indict corporations because that can have these collateral consequences, these effects like uh, we throw tens of thousands of people out of work, or if we prosecute a bank, we could um, start a um, a uh, you know a financial crisis. That was something that really affected the way they approached um, prosecutions post the financial crisis in 2008. They didn't they thought the markets were so fragile that they couldn't handle prosecutions of large corporations or especially banks, um, and because these are interconnected firms. So we're not going to indict. So we should try to settle and we want to root out corruption. We don't want to just pick out bad apples. And so what they happened to do was turn toward these settlements with corporations. And they go by a variety of different names and they have um, names. Prosecutors pretend that these are prosecutions. They call them deferred prosecution agreements. Sometimes they call them non-prosecution agreements. Sometimes, even recently, they've gotten guilty pleas from corporations, uh, but they're all really the same thing. It's all a semantic issue. And really what it is, is they're settling with a corporation for money. And, um, and then the question is, you know, does it work? That's the main question is, do these settlements work? Do they root out um, the corruption at these companies? Do they have any deterrent effect? Um, for the companies themselves or the industry or corporations writ large? And the answer is simply no, they do not. And we see this because we see recidivist corporations all the time. There are a number of things to unpack here. The first being going back to the access theory. Uh, and I think you argue that uh, Arthur Anderson was effectively the end of the access theory, um, the last major gatekeeper um, that that uh, got prosecuted. And um, to me, this is not only a travesty of uh, prosecutions, but it's probably one of the most effective ways to actually prevent um, fraud itself uh, by going after the lawyers and the accountants. Um, and then you have this idea of too big to jail or that you can't uh, go after investment banks or you can't go after the banks in the uh, great financial crisis uh, because uh, the whole world is too fragile and, and the jobs will be lost. And I, I think one of the things that I always, how I think about this is, you know, you compare it to a larger fraud that everybody agrees with what happened. I mean, there there were people who worked for uh, Bernie Madoff and his securities firm, and those people lost their jobs. And certainly there was collateral damage that, that came from that. But um, we as a society would almost... Uh, rather continue to build the house of cards, so to speak, uh, creating ultimately larger collapses and larger frauds when they do happen. And, and we'd rather build those and have kind of the slow trickle down, uh, just drain uh, on our economy uh, and allow this stuff to go on. And, and I think ultimately uh, you, you somewhat argue that the individuals don't get prosecuted because these cases become so complex um, that you can't actually pinpoint it to the to the executives anymore. So you you can't go after the 
gatekeepers because the PR uh, that happened after Arthur Anderson. You can't go after the corporations because our whole world would fall apart if we did that. And we can't go after the executives because uh, the businesses are too complex to go after. So we're left with a world where we have these deferred prosecution agreements and uh, shareholders are left uh, holding the bag and, and paying for the malfeasance. And I think exactly like you say, it, it's clear um, that we're not doing a good job of, of deterring fraud. Uh, you can look up any day almost in the newspaper and whether it's you know J.P. Morgan or Herbalife or Tyson Foods or these guys, almost every day there's a deferred prosecution agreement and, and uh, almost nobody's going to jail. Yeah, I, to I totally agree with you. Let's table the question of um, whether it's too complex to prosecute uh, individual executives, particularly at high levels of corporations for a second, because that's, that is the crucial question. And, um, and it's an incredibly important one. And uh, I want to have more discussion of that, but I'll say very briefly, you know, you raise Bernie Madoff and the question that your viewers may have as well, or the objection they may have to my argument as well, we did prosecute Bernie Madoff, and we also prosecuted a bunch of um, hedge fund managers like Raj Rajaratnam. And um, so uh, what are you talking about? Well, so prosecutors know how to do certain things, and they do it over and over again. They know how to prosecute Ponzi schemes, and they know how to prosecute insider trading um, to some extent, although that's even now being kind of uh, eroded by the courts uh, to some extent. Uh, and so they do it over and over again. And why they can prosecute a hedge fund like SAC, although I do think that they were chicken shit and not going after Steve Cohn and talk about not being deterred or not learning a lesson. This is a guy now who's going to buy the Mets. So uh, so he certainly did not pay much of a societal price um, for having his fund charged with cr being a criminal operation. But um, the reason why they can do that is that uh, hedge funds are relatively discrete entities. They're actually not that interconnected financially with the rest of the economy, and they don't have that many um, workers generally, um, even a giant one like SAC. And so that's kind of viewed, at least in the back of prosecutors' minds, often this isn't really explicit as not being too big to jail or too big to fail. That's the issue there. What What's going on? Why do they have these kind of discrete prosecutions? But if you look at Madoff, what you see is um, when they went to prosecute the banks, like JP Morgan that enabled uh, Madoff, they didn't prosecute any individuals at the banks. The idea that Madoff could have survived without uh, enormous help from mainstream financial institutions is ludicrous. Um, and in fact, we know that uh, many mainstream uh, financial institutions suspected that he was a Ponzi operator, uh, said, cut off, cut him off from banking um, at the uh, firm and things like that. And yet JP Morgan kept on and on and actually ends up signing a deferred prosecution agreement. And uh, it's quite harsh, but no individuals are charged with crimes in connection with that. So now to the question of whether it is too complex or too difficult to prosecute individuals. And I reject that entirely. Um, what I think we are seeing is a erosion of skill set um, and talent and knowledge about how to prosecute them. 
uh, the Department of Justice, and this is, it's hard for prosecutors to hear this. They are extremely bright people, um, and they've gone, uh, the people at the SDNY and the main justice and the elite offices of the Department of Justice have gone to the best high schools and the best colleges and the best law schools, and they're a whole hell of a lot more accomplished and smarter than I am, but they're not competent anymore institutionally um, where they don't know how to properly investigate and they don't know how to properly bring the right charges and they don't know how to uh, win a trial. And so they're scared of all of those things and they avoid them. And uh, the average U.S. attorney, uh, AUSA, assistant U.S. attorney, a line prosecutor in the 1970s did about eight trials a year. Today they do fewer than 0.2 trials a year. Uh, so what we have is a complete collapse of trial expertise. And you're talking about how to surface information publicly, and maybe it comes out in FOIAs, although often it doesn't come out in FOIAs, and in internal investigations don't come out at all. I completely agree with you about that. The way to really um, bring the public up to knowledge, bring knowledge to the public of um, the crimes that were committed at a corporation is to bring it to trial. Um, that is where uh, evidence is surfaced and challenged and uh, adjudicated by a jury and a judge. Hasn't that been uh, made difficult by, uh, you know, the Holder memo and the, the Thompson memo and, and some of the investigatory tools that the uh, prosecutors don't have that they had during the Sporkin era? Yes. Yes, prosecutors' tools have been stripped away, um, some by internal policy at the Department of Justice and some by the courts, which have taken a real libertarian turn and have had enormously sympathetic rulings um, toward white-collar, <coughs> accused white-collar defendants and, uh, and rolled back regulatory power. And the Department of Justice has taken a lot of uh, its own powers away. Now, you're referring to the Holder memo, which becomes the Thompson memo and goes through a series of evolutions. And that is a memo that lays out how to investigate and prosecute corporations and also when corporations deserve leniency, you know, what, what they consider to be cooperation. And that all kind of changes the way corporations are approached corporate criminality is approached at the Department of Justice um, and pu pushes them toward these settlements and away from um, prosecutions of individuals and away from indictments of corporations. And um, it's much, much easier to settle with a corporation for money than it is to prosecute a CEO. That will take years. The CEO will fight. There's a huge risk that they'll lose a trial. Um, you won't have a career accomplishment. Um, and if you rack up one or two or three or four big settlements with corporations, you're going to be very uh, accomplished and uh, attractive to your next employer. And what has happened at the Department of Justice to get back to what we were talking about earlier is that today the Department of Justice is a training ground for future corporate defense lawyers. Um, and the government should not be a training ground for the private sector. That's a corrupt system. It's a broken system. Um, but today what we have is people who are relatively young um, at the Department of Justice, very, very capable, very smart on an individual basis with the wrong individual incentives by and large. And their incentive is to dazzle partners at law firms um, and ultimately to be you know, seen as 
uh, a very tough negotiator, but ultimately a reasonable person. And a reasonable person settles on a big settlement, but not something that's too onerous or um, not a cowboy. And then uh, those people go and become partners uh, with the people that they were negotiating across the table with. Um, and that's, uh, as I say, a corrupt and broken system. And the lawyers lawyers get their fee either way, though, I'm sure. Yeah, uh, you that's know, the first rule. You know, we've been talking about the, uh, the Department of Justice. Um, what role does the SEC play? Because I think... Um, you know, among my cohort of investors and and um, people who play in the game and and try to point out wrongdoing, I, I think that there's a general feeling that the SEC is is toothless, and I, I don't uh, mean that in a way that there aren't um, competent people there uh, doing real work. But what happens is you get you know, high profile cases like Tesla and Elon Musk, where he comes out and he says he doesn't respect the SEC and he makes, you know, lewd comments about uh, uh, the chairman and arguably uh, commits uh, real crimes, but nothing happens. So, you know, do they suffer at the SEC from the same issues that the Department of Justice suffers from? Uh, and how, how do they feed into each other? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the SEC has been um, rendered a completely chicken shit operation, too. And uh, it's hard to remember um, an SEC chair that uh, was feared um, or serious minded about policing corporate America. Maybe you have to go back to Breeden, um, but it's been decades now, uh, certainly not under um, Donald Trump and unfortunately not under uh, Obama either. Uh, you know, the Obama record on white collar crime is uh, um, one of the great scandals of the Obama administration, in my view. Um, and the SEC primarily uh, would need to, the primary problem with the SEC is it's not working to help the Department of Justice prosecute securities fraud criminally. Um, so the SEC has no criminal powers and they do civil investigations um, and they do fewer civil investigations than ever now under the, in the Trump administration. Um, and uh, they're very slow and deliberative. Um, they're doing a lot of um, uh, chicken feed stuff like, uh, you know, Ponzi schemes and pink sheet companies and uh, Bolton board stuff and uh, things that, you know, small cap stocks, uh, things that really don't uh, matter. They do an enormous amount of insider trading, which I think of as a kind of um, really a kind of secondary crime, um, uh, you know, a, a very unimportant crime in the scheme of things. Um, and, uh, and so, um, but a kind of easy to understand crime and something that uh, prosecutors do over and over again and regulators do over and over again and juries sort of understand it. Um, and so it's kind of popular uh, target. And so, yes, the SEC has played a terrible role in this. And I have um, a chapter in my book in which goes into great detail about uh, a lawyer at the SEC who wanted to bring um civil fraud charges against Goldman Sachs for uh, their collateralized debt obligation business and was thwarted at every turn. And at one point, an SEC official um, announces, you know, internally, they're discussing um, charges that they're going to bring against Fabrice Tour, who is the young French Goldman um, associate who 
ends up being charged by the SEC, the only one at the SEC who's uh, charged by the SEC, only one at Goldman um, for CDOs. And this SEC guy sends an email around saying, remember, um, these are good people who've made one bad mistake. And um, in, that's a uh, uh, good people who've made one bad mistake. And I think that that is a endemic problem with the way uh, our regulators and prosecutors see white collar criminals. It's fundamentally good, fundamentally um, of our class. There's an enormous amount of elite affinity here. These people are um, articulate and well-educated and tasteful, uh, and they can't, just can't be criminals. And they are quite well-educated and quite tasteful uh, and um, very erudite in many ways and articulate. Um, and you know, many of them are, are just criminals, criminals at heart. And the problem with that ethos that they're good people have made one bad mistake is, one, you just don't know if they're good people or not. Maybe they're just bad people. Maybe Goldman Sachs or McKinsey hires a lot of um, people who are rotten to the core and have terrible values and don't care about paying attention to the rules. I think that that's very plausible. Um, but the second thing is, how do you know that this was a mistake? Maybe this was done on purpose. And well, how do you know that it was one? It was the one that you got caught uh, with, but that doesn't mean that it's one bad mistake. So that as a matter of logic, it's a terrible way to approach your job. Um, and uh, it's something that makes them go soft. Yeah, it's interesting because one of the things that uh, good short sellers do in looking for companies to investigate is to follow bad actors around. And one, birds of a feather flock together. Uh, and two, oftentimes, because these guys <clears throat> are not being put away, um, they go from you know one fraud and they disappear for a couple of years and they come up on another fraud and and it's it's fertile grounds to look because people these people generally do not change and uh, you would think um, that you would have somewhat of the same investigatory tactics at the SEC um, by saying look if Goldman or McKinsey hire these people and they're doing wrongdoing then there's probably other people that are doing wrongdoing around there because it's it's a culture of it. And we saw that with Arthur Anderson. And again, you know, unfortunately, uh, we, we've lost a lot of that. And also, it seems that it used to be that the way that they would investigate these companies is they would start down with the lower, you know, you would like moving up through the mafia, right? You'd start with the capo and you'd move up. And the way to go through a complex investigation was to get the details from down low and move up to the boss. In fact, I think somewhere yeah. in your book, you, you, there was a prosecutor that, that used to do mafia cases, and he says, you know, it's bullshit. If I can go yeah. out and do international drug cartels and get to the boss, and you guys can figure out you know, what, the, what the head of the bank is doing, right, and whether, whether he knew. So we've moved to that to now where the, the young guys are no longer used to get the executives. They're used as sacrificial lambs. And they're thrown. And so you get your fee, you get your sacrificial lamb and the executives get to uh, essentially move on. Yeah, you're absolutely right. This is what I mean when I talk about a lost skill set um, and a bad investigative approach is that they do not invest the time and resources into flipping the low level people and working their way up the chain. And that's also why I reject the idea that these are 
too complex or that um, these investigations are more difficult to do than they they were in the past because cartel investigations are extremely complex and everything is hidden. And the Enrons of the world were extremely complex. And there was nothing written down. Ken Lay and Jeff Skilling had no emails. Um, and so what you needed to do was focus on prosecuting individuals and nailing them for crimes and then putting them in the witness chair and having them say, uh, I committed a crime and look at the jury and say, I am guilty. And, and I did it with that guy sitting right there. Um, and the other thing that they need to do is focus on um, simple stories. Uh, and the simple story of uh, the prosecution of Ken Lay, especially, was lies, lies and truth. Um, he was saying one thing in public and another thing in private and doing one thing in public and doing another thing in private. Um, so they didn't get into uh, arcane debates about whether the off-balance sheet vehicles were illegal or not and whether they'd sold off their right percentage or not. And, um, and all of those kind of uh, that all that accounting arcana and securities law arcana that uh, really the defense wanted to get into, they eschewed that entirely. Um, and that was a very effective trial. So the problem is, one of the problems is that we need to restore the skill set here. Um, and that means that they've got to go to trial more and they've got to lose more. And the whole point of the title of the Chicken Shit Club comes from a Jim Comey line, um, that Jim Comey, but this is when he was back in the uh, head of the SDNY in the early 2000s, and he gathers all these prosecutors together, and he says, how many of you have never lost a case? And a bunch of hands shoot up, and he says, well, we call you the chicken shit club um, because you're taking on you know, the easy uh, pickings, you know, the low-hanging fruit, and what you need to do, your job is not about uh, racking up a, uh, uh, you know, a record with no losses, um, an undefeated record. Your job is to do justice. And justice requires taking on the most ambitious cases and the um, most significant wrongdoers. And um, if sometimes you lose, justice still has been served. The big question is, how do we do it, right? Uh, is it as easy as getting the right leadership in? Or you know, I guess if you had a magic wand and you could make three or four or five things happen that you think would be uh, effective in causing you know, immediate change, or maybe not immediate, but uh, long-lasting change and in, in, in getting the departments and the regulatory bodies aims back in the right direction, uh, what would those changes be? Yeah, I, there's no immediate changing this. This, um, this is an enormous crisis where the institutions of our government have been under attack um, for decades. And um, a restoration project uh, for the federal government's regulatory apparatus is going to take years and years and billions and billions of dollars. Um, one thing you need to do is invest in the IRS. And my colleague, Paul Keel, and I have a series of stories at ProPublica called Gutting the IRS, and I encourage people to read them. Um, billions have been taken out of the budget and tens of thousands of employees at the IRS have left and audits have collapsed and criminal referrals have collapsed and criminal referrals of 
tax fraud almost don't exist anymore, which is kind of mind boggling. But the IRS mainly um, when it prosecutes tax fraud criminally is attaching itself to ongoing prosecutions of money laundering or, you know, drug cartels and things like that. But they're not really prosecuting um, people who have legal income and yet uh, cheat on their taxes. That almost doesn't exist anymore. As I say, audits of the wealthy have collapsed, audits of corporations have collapsed. And today, if you make less than $20,000, if you're a member of the working poor, your chances of being audited are greater than if you make $500,000. Your chances of being audited are about the same as if you're in the 1%. Um, and so that's where the IRS. So we need a reclamation project for the IRS, and it'd probably take a decade and multiple billions of dollars of hiring and training and people learning to audit the wealthy. You need a reclamation project for the SEC and the entirety of uh, the EPA and uh, OSHA and um, <clears throat> the FTC and the antitrust division of the Department of Justice and on and on. Um, and then you would need to, so you need to invest in government. Then do, the, do the restorations, I, I know they're full encompassing and there's not just one thing, but are these, um, is it, uh, just putting more money in? Is it uh, fixing a problem of the revolving door? Um, you know, right. what what is a, you know, let's tackle the Department of Justice uh, and and or the SEC and and you know what are a handful of things that a that a restoration looks like. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N ads.com. So after you have that, then what you need to do, let's just take the DOJ since it's this is a complex issue. But uh, then what I would do is completely throw out um, settlements with corporations um, and use them only as a very last resort and totally orient toward prosecuting individuals. Individuals can create crimes, pieces of paper that say, uh, you know, we're a corporation, do not commit crimes. And so what I would do is um, reorient um, entirely to focusing on prosecuting individuals um, uh, and then try to incentivize individual prosecutors to uh, conduct those investigations and trials. Um, not relying on the internal investigations conducted by uh, the handpicked law firms, um, corporations who uh, who handpick their law firms. Um, and I would pay these prosecutors a lot more money so that uh, many of them would want to stay. I think a lot of people like being a prosecutor. And if we could keep them uh, more of them as lifers to have some kind of institutional knowledge, I think that would end up being a good thing. You want a little bit of revolving door so that there's some skill set. But mainly what I would do is have uh, the DOJ recruit totally differently instead of recruiting bright young things from the elite law schools and the top law firms uh, who are very uh, young and energetic and in their uh, 20s, I would um, recruit away from the elite law schools. So, you know, that's the top 50 law schools rather than the top five. Um, I would, I want people who are in uh, consumer protection law and class action lawyers um, and defense attorneys who are refugees from big law who don't want to go back, um, who know where the bodies are buried. Um, 
and uh, all sorts of public interest lawyers, uh, academics, people like that. Um, so I would want an enormous amount more diversity in the ranks of prosecutors, uh, professional um, diversity, age diversity, experiential diversity, breaking the hold of these elite law schools. Um, and then uh, there needs to be much more policy thinking. The Department of Justice is a really strange bureaucracy, and it's essentially all these discrete offices that um, act quasi-independently of each other. Um, and what you need is some overarching policy thinking to say, what are have the um, statutes been, what are the statutes that have been rolled back over the last decade, 15 years by the judiciary, and where do we need to pound the legislature, pound Congress to um, restore some of these powers and, and get some of these statutes back so that we can take on these criminals. Um, as it is, the courts have, um, are in the process of making white collar crime and political corruption legal in this country. Um, and if uh, the legislature and prosecutorial ranks don't uh, address this statutorily, um, they're going to have no powers left. What do you think the hope of of getting the access theory back and being able to prosecute the gatekeepers? Uh, I mean, you can't. You know, the the funny thing is, is every every fraud that's ever been per perpetrated, you know, by a public company has had audited financials, right? So I mean, yeah. it's all the proof that you need that the auditors there, uh, either their job is not to detect. Uh, fraud, which I, I really think is the issue, but um, to some degree that they they clearly allow it to happen. So is that a lost cause, or or how do we how do we get the gatekeepers back as the the fraud detours? I think that there is beginning to be some broad recognition of the problem um, of uh, the lack of white collar prosecutions. I think the uh, Trump administration has thrown this problem into great relief um, since it's uh, you know the most corrupt uh, administration we've had since, uh, I don't know, since Teapot Dome or something. And so it, a lot of it depends on who's uh, elected. If Trump is elected, then I think we see um, something much worse than what we have already. You know, we, we didn't even talk about uh, the collapse of the DOJ under the Trump administration and how that's really challenged the rule of law and how uh, they're eroding the rule of law in this country and creating a DOJ that doesn't just not prosecute people, but actually has become a weapon to uh, persecute enemies of Trump and, to, and a shield to protect his friends. And that is um, that attacks the very core of our society and the rule of law. Um, so more of that if Trump is reelected. Um, and if Biden is uh, elected, then um, I think that there's a possibility that we would get um, an actual kind of beginnings of a restoration of the regulatory state and um, prosecution. But uh, I don't particularly see um, the administration being making this a priority. They're going to have a lot uh, of other priorities. Um, the Obama administration, of which Biden was a part, obviously, was incredibly weak on white collar prosecution. So it, de it depends on who Biden appoints. Um, these various roles. I think there's going to be a battle within the soul of the Democratic Party because there are reformists uh, like the, the Warren um, people, and then there are kind of um, the conservative corporate Dems who uh, are not particularly interested in this, and we'll, we'll have to see. I mean, I'm pretty uh, skeptical that a Biden administration would really kind of lead um, to much turnaround here. 
Yeah. Well, one of the broader implications that I see, and, you know, we, given our different jobs, you know, approach uh, or kind of see the, the, the outcomes of your research um, leading to different conclusions. But, um, you know, to me, being able to go after the gatekeepers um, is important for two reasons. One, it's a fraud deterrent. But two, what I see in my line of work is that the lawyers and the law firms are not only you know, the home now of regulation, we've outsourced the regulation, um, but in many instances, um, they now get used by the corporations as hitmen. Uh, and what I mean by that is large name frauds like Wirecard and Mimetics, um, those companies and others like them have um, wielded enormous power to uh, ruin the lives of people who have tried to blow the whistle on the malfeasance at these companies. And I don't think most of the investing public is aware, um, you know, that whistleblowers have their homes broken into, their phones and computers hacked, their children and, you know, families' pictures being taken care, you know, uh, taken and put up on on the internet. And um, I find in my work that, that, that much of that uh, can be drawn back to uh, the law firms that uh, that we've outsourced this regulation to. So, uh, you know, to me, the ability to get the gatekeepers, however we can do that, would uh, it, it is a huge problem that you point out in your book. And again, one of the reasons I think it's uh, such a fascinating read and, and such an important read. And I'm, I'm glad that uh, we could uh, bring attention to it uh, in the proper way to the uh, financial community here on, on Real Vision. And I guess before we leave, we're coming up on the hour here, um, I'm going to try to end each one of these interviews that I do uh, by asking, you know, where should I go next on my journey, right? So do I talk to ex-SEC guys? Do I, you know, where do we go to learn more, to dig deeper about what the problem is and ultimately how, how we can fix it? Um, well, that's a good question. I think that there are a series of reform-minded young policy people, not uh, young and not so young uh, policy folks um, in Washington right now, uh, you know, or uh, having come from Washington, and um, and they have a lot of bright ideas about this. So um, you have, uh, like, a, a lot of Warren acolytes. Uh, Jennifer Taub is a, um, a law professor who's got a new book out, um, which everybody should read on uh, white-collar crime called Big Dirty Money. I have it right here. Um, and saw that. Uh, there's, yeah. a, there's a guy, Graham Steele, um, out of Stanford, who uh, worked on the Hill a long time. And uh, Amanda Fisher, um, who works at a think tank in, in uh, Washington. And, uh, you know, and so there are a variety of people who are thinking about these issues of how to regulate. Um, and then there's, of course, a, a very interesting antitrust uh, movement um, being led by intellectuals like Lena Khan um, and uh, Matt Stoller, um, and uh, and you know I'm I'm leaving out a bunch of different names, but uh, uh, so there is a kind of a burgeoning um, ferment uh, under the surface to bring back tax enforcement and antitrust enforcement and securities law enforcement, um, and if they happen to uh, get a foothold in the next administration, they're going to have a lot of chance to influence and uh and change things and reform things we'll we'll have to see that's great jesse 
appreciate your time. Uh, fascinating. Uh, if you haven't read the book, uh, it's an absolute must read. And uh, maybe we can get you on some other time to uh, dig into uh, post-Trump, post-Trump election and see where we are. Well, we'll have to see. That, thanks a lot. I uh, really enjoyed it. You bet. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.